I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. This is The Athletic Baseball Show on The Athletic Podcast Network. That is hammered. Oh, my. Man, that ball got out of here in a hurry. You know, anything travels that far ought to have a damn stewardess on it, don't you think? High drive. Left field. It is out of here. This is a simple game. You throw the ball. You hit the ball. You catch the ball. You got it! You're listening to The Roundtable with Grant Brisby, Andy McCullough, and Mark Carrig on the Athletic Podcast Network. Welcome to episode number 63 of The Roundtable. I'm Grant Brisby. I'm here with Andy McCullough and Mark Carrig. Uh, Mark, let's start with you. You just got a text from Andy's wife that says, please make him stop, I hate it. I don't think we need any other context. No, that's pretty much it. Yeah. How you doing today, Mark? All of a sudden, I have a sudden urge to crush some Slim Jims. <laughs> it's weird. I haven't wanted one of those in years, and now I want to go right to 7-Eleven and procure some Slim Jims for some reason. I'm taking a look at my fellow minor league teammates in 1971, brother. Larry Herndon was there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> A fun reminder that Randy Savage played minor league baseball. He did. And he had a 420 on base percentage in his first year in rookie ball. Like, he had some skills. The world could have been a different place. Do you think he would have, like, done that in the postgame presser? (laughs) God, that would have been great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's been a while since there's been a guy actively doing presser bits. I mean, was Brian Wilson the last one? I, Mark, you're in the clubhouse all the time. Do you remember anyone? <laughs> I, I'm trying, I know I'm missing one. I know I'm missing one. It's been a while since there was a guy who was like actively doing a thing. I feel John like. Brebbia. I mean, maybe it was John Brebbia John is Brebbia? like uh, quirky, clever, but he's not uh, as try hard as Brian Wilson. You know what I mean? Like, uh, I don't, so I wouldn't say that's doing a bit. That's just him being nat- naturally quirky and funny. Joey Votto cut a legit promo on uh, TV a couple of weeks ago with um, what's-his-face. Chris Russo, yeah. Like, some guys live their gimmick, right? Like, that's kind of what Brian Wilson, he ended up, like, the mask he used to wear became his face. But, like, like Votto, he's just a genuine article. I mean, that's just him. Like, he's just an intense fella who, uh, you know, can kind of riff for quite some time. That felt like cutting a promo to me, but, yeah, I, I think you're right. Yeah. I went to high school with a guy who was like the quirky guy and like every you'd ask him a question, he'd like say Snickers, you know, and like he was just kind of quirky. And then all of a sudden that became him and he ended up uh, making really, really weird indie horror movies that are like too out there for even like horror fans. So eventually the, you know, the mask just sticks. 
Yeah. By the way, my voice is like already sort of shot from doing like like three minutes of a terrible. Really? So, yeah. Because I'm I'm digging deep. I didn't think it was terrible at all. I was actually waiting for you to break out like the creamer. No, but there's like there's people who can do like you know like Dan Soder can do like a real macho man. Like I'm you know I'm doing an impression of an impression. I I lose my voice whenever Tom Waits comes on in the car. Right, is that good? This is what the people come to the pod for. This is why they listen. Were you halfway between an accent right there? What was that? That's just how Tom Waits No, Andy. Andy, like, started, like, to do a fake British accent and mid-syllables seemed to catch himself. No, that's just what my voice sounds like. What if he's really British? Hey, can I ask one quick music thing before we actually talk about baseball? Because I was thinking about this. Grant, where are you on the Grateful Dead? I'm a fan. I'm like a weirdo insofar as I prefer their studio albums. Like I have no, oh, wow. I don't okay. really need to hear them noodle for the most part. I, I do have some performances I like, but when people complain that like Europe 72 is all overdubbed, I'm like, yeah, that's where the harmonies sound good. But I, yeah, <laughs> I think they've got a vast catalog of really good songs. Okay. Right. Are they just, polarizing? Just, yeah. Yeah, I'd say so. Yeah. The old joke, uh... Oh God! What was it? Where like Eric Clapton dies and goes to heaven, and he's uh, he sees a guitar, and I I'm gonna screw the joke up. No, uh, Brian, cut this out. This is terrible. This is bad. Fun. <laughs> the point is that he was actually in hell, and Jerry Garcia had to play Dark Star forever. Uh, funny, yeah, I nailed it. <laughs> Man, the '90s sound fun. Yeah, yeah no. I wish I'd been there. <laughs> no worries. Just listen to Cypress Hill and. Have big pants. All right. Uh, let's talk about uh, baseball. Anything happened last week? Any players get injured? Any famous players? Any big stories? Oh, man. Oh, yeah. boy. Yeah. We got to talk about Shohei Otani. I don't like talking about it in the context of how does this affect his free agent value? How does this affect the market? I, I hate that because I also think of it, and I hate myself for thinking it, but I just i am sad that he's not like – there should always be an Otani in our lives, and it's a reminder that there probably won't be another Otani forever, and we have a limited time with this one. I am with you. Don't really care about the market. He's going to get paid a lot of money this winter. Ken Rosenthal made a fairly compelling case why he'll still get $500 million. And even if he was only getting $300 million, I don't feel much pity for someone uh, you know, in that scenario. I just don't. I'm sorry. What I am really interested in, though, I am very, very – like I think it's actually in some ways almost more interesting is kind of what he decides to do next. What if he – you know, because – as we've mentioned a few times on the show, he doesn't really let people know what he's thinking, what he wants to do, kind of where his intentions are. He has not spoken to the media since he got injured. My understanding is the team has communicated to reporters that he won't be speaking for the foreseeable future. He only talks after he pitches. And guess what? He ain't pitching for the rest of the year. So you might not hear from him for quite some time. So it really is an open question of like, does he want to get Tommy John again and take a year off from pitching? Does he want to try and do a non-surgical route? Does he want to come back and pitch at all? all there's so many different live options. You know, as one one scout has often said to me over the years, you know, uh, that when he saw Otani in Japan, he was like, that will be the greatest right fielder in baseball history if he chooses to do it. You know, like this person could go out there and he could be what whatever. He could be like Mookie Betts, right? Like he could be that sort of player with maybe even more of an, uh, you know, offensive upside. But we just don't know. 
And so it's certainly not an ideal outcome seeing him get hurt. It's relatively predictable given how hard it is, you know, what he's doing and wrote last week about how he sort of, you know, uh, reconfigured our concept of what people can actually do on a baseball field. But like the human body is undefeated. But I think that it makes his market in some ways more interesting. It makes his future fascinating and we have no idea what he wants <laughs> do you, no clue do you think he does i mean like uh, yeah like i've i have no idea like if this is the beginning stages for him i would assume i would suspect he's probably been aware that there's something up with his arm for most of the mm. summer yeah fair enough fair enough so if he's going to get the kind of contract that is not just for being a good baseball player which he'll get a big contract. He will get a contract that will make him stick around the organization and shake people's hands and and be just a part and around, uh, kind of like what Pujols got from the Angels, which I'm sure he's, you know, everyone's just clamoring to see him uh, at the, the Angels ballpark these days. But does that change if he's just a hitter? Like, what is the value of Otani as a concept to a team if he's just like a heck of a slugger? I don't know the answer to that because he's still one of the biggest superstars the game could ever have. But there's that little, uh, just that factor is gone where he's so unique as a two-way player. If he's merely a slugger, can he still be that, you know, almost billion-dollar face of a, of a franchise? Sure. I mean, I can handle this one, Mark. You can take today off. <laughs> um, I do think a significant part of his appeal to casual fans is the two-way nature but you can still sell a lot of billboards in america and japan with the idea of a slugger who is going to compete for the home run title every year with a guy who can wake up and just decide in 2023 i'm going to hit more home runs than every other player and start doing it right with a guy with a thousand OPS who's in the lineup every day. Yeah, for sure. You can you can still market him really well. Now, like, is he, you know, gonna be uh, you know, talked about in such like mythical terms? No. But, you know, Ichiro wasn't mythical and Ichiro was a huge marketing, you know, sort of force. Like Hugh Darvish was a huge marketing force. And these were guys who were just really good at one thing in baseball. Saying that Ichiro um, wasn't mythical? <laughs> oh, I guess his power was yeah, batting practice legend. Yeah, 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 right. If he wanted to, he could hit 50 home runs. He just chose to hit 275 for 10. <laughs> what I'm saying is that, yeah, he's still a huge, huge star. Huge star. I think where it gets more interesting is just like, what is he, does he want to win in 2024? Or does he want to get back to pitching? And those things aren't as aligned as they may have been before he got hurt. You know what I mean? That's a good point. I mean, it's so break that down a little bit more. So how are they not as aligned as maybe they could be? In order to come back as a pitcher at some point in his career, whether it's next year or if he has to go a surgical route, it's going to require taking time away from the hitting. It's going to require taking time away. Uh, you know, it, you can't fill up both buckets. I guess. And so in a if in a in a perfect world if he's healthy, right? He's able to do the Otani thing, pitch once a week and then hit the other days and he can kind of dictate his own schedule, all that stuff and it's a huge benefit. You know, he's like worth, you know, whatever, 10 wins, 15 wins, whatever you want to say in, in terms of whatever war system you're using. But if you want to have him on the field 
hitting at his full potential. It's not coming back from, you know, Tommy John. I mean, Bryce Harper's having a really nice season, but Bryce Harper's capable of more. You know, Corey Seager, you know, had Tommy John surgery and, you know, missed an entire season so he could come back in the field. It's just he's rehabbing an injury. So even if he's able to go out there and produce like an 825, 850 OPS while rehabbing or something like that, that's just not as valuable as a guy who's a full-time hitter. You know what I mean? Yeah. And do you think that this helps the, not helps the Angels, but I mean, gives the Angels a better chance to, to re-sign him? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Because if you're the Dodgers now, right, what do you offer him? Like the idea of 12 for 650, right? That's like, you can't do that. Like that's crazy. So do you offer, and what does he want? Does he want a long-term commitment? Does he want a team who's willing to say, we want you with our franchise and we want you to get back to being who you were physically. And we will pay you a premium to do that over two or three seasons. I can think of a team who would do that. The Angels, maybe. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there's no need to leave. Look, what this whole thing's illustrated to me is just how much he calls the shots in his orbit. Mm-hmm. Okay, that, I mean, that's the one thing that, as an observer, comes through crystal clear. Nothing happens there without his say-so. He at least knows if he stays in Anaheim, that won't change. And I think that's a big deal, all right? I think that's a huge deal. You, you could go sign somewhere else and they'll tell you, you get to call your own shots. But when push comes to shove, you don't actually know. Whereas even look at this last week, everything that we're hearing about this situation is straight out of Otani's camp. What they decide is going to get released. Now, you know, obviously, Perry Manazian's been their, their spokesperson, but there's nothing about what's going on that isn't coming straight from Shohei Otani. You can't put a price tag on that, knowing that that's going to happen, knowing that, you know, in the case of the Angels, you've got, you know, these years of track record that tells you, yes, I get to call my own shots. So... The question is, does this make it easier for him to come back or make it more likely for the Angels to keep him? I think it absolutely does, just for that alone. Just for the idea that he knows he'll be able to call his own shots playing there. Maybe that's the thing that's most important because he's shown it in sort of the behavior here. You know, He talks when he wants to talk. He says what he wants to say and stops when he wants to stop. And no one's going to tell him otherwise there. Nobody. What organization would you think uh, would be the most implausible fit when it comes to letting him do what he wants? Is there one that sticks out in your guys' head? The Dodgers. <laughs> I mean, the Dodgers have quite successfully found a way over the past, you know, six to seven years of getting players to make personal sacrifices towards collective goals whether that's convincing Clayton Kershaw long ago, the importance of getting infield shifts behind him versus, you know, having to dictate how the infield was set or getting guys to take extra days of rest or getting players to buy into platoons and all that sort of stuff. You know, they have really, really figured out a lot of a way to get a 26 person unit making small sacrifices towards the greater good. Certainly Otani could fit within that, Context. I'm not suggesting that he wouldn't be a great fit on the Dodgers, obviously. What I'm saying is that that is a team that often asks their best players to do something that might be outside their comfort zone or outside of their control. 
you know, and they've shown great success. They win a hundred games every year. So that's kind of how they've been able to do it. I think they would obviously bend a little bit for Otani, but that is certainly one team that immediately comes to mind in terms of individual sacrifices for collective. Andy, can I ask you a question? Were you just drawing a shitty cube? With my finger? I don't know. It seemed like you were drawing something. I thought you were drawing a shitty. No, cube. I was. No, I was scratching something on a uh, on a uh, my kitchen table. Oh, okay, more shitty cubes for Sorry. the podcast. Well, that's it, I guess, for the, the yeah. table. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll see you next yeah. week. <laughs> Mariners are in first. All right. No. Grant loves the Grateful Dead. <laughs> uh, Mark, you're wearing a Mariners shirt. Uh, aren't we supposed to be uh, dispassionate journalists? You, you're you're rocking you're rocking an old school Mariners. Yeah, I'm pretty dispassionate. I just like the way they look. It's a good looking That's shirt. It's, it's a, a good looking shirt. It's a nice. Shirt. It's an old BP jersey. It's nice. Old blue and gold for them. Hey, they're good all of a sudden. Huh? I know. We've been meaning to talk about the Mariners for a couple of weeks now, um, but you know the masses uh, crave hot. Yankees and uh, Randy Savage content. So it, it's taken a while, but the, the Mariners are, are good. They're in first place as of today, this recording on Tuesday. Brian, if you could go back through the archives and find there was one time where we were talking about one of these teams is going to take it and run, and one of these teams is going to end up being good, whether it's the uh, the Yankees, the Cardinals, or uh, it was the Mariners. It was the Mariners. Uh, the Mar- <laughs> it was always the Mariners. And you know what? Like I, They were the team that made me stare at their baseball reference, reference page and go, I don't get it. I don't get why this team is so mediocre. I just, and you're looking, all their starters have an ERA of like three and, and you know, they're, they're walking not that many batters and they're striking out the world. Uh, Mariners are good. I think that they might be a sneaky, don't want to play them in the, the postseason kind of team. Uh, that's a bit strong. I am uncertain about their rotation, if only... Because outside of Luis Castillo, I'm not sure any of these gentlemen have ever pitched in a postseason game before. I could be wrong about that. I'm making this up as I go along. They're all right-handed. I think they're all right-handed. I mean, and even if you had guys that saw action last year against the Blue Jays in that series, and then later on. Oh yeah, sorry. Can we just delete everything I say on this episode? George Kirby has a 0.00 ERA in the postseason to uh, two games pitch. Good job, Andy. All right. Well, at, why are we talking about teams that play on the West Coast? You know <laughs> My thought is just they're like, I don't know, like sneaky. No, they, they might be good. We'll see. We'll see. I don't want to play the Astros if I'm another team. You know why? The Astros win every freaking year. Maybe I'm an idiot because that's how I think about these things. But that's how I think about these things. The Astros have Jose Altuve and Jordan Alvarez and Alex Bregman. I don't want to play them. Yeah. Well, they also have uh, Mauricio Dubon and uh, uh, Corey Jolks. You know, it's not. It's not all. It's not all Altuve's all, the whole way down. And you know, I. I don't know the Astros. Yeah, you don't want to play the Astros. Uh, they're. Pitching is, is getting a little squirrely. Um, Justin Verlander was a good addition. But right as they started to hit a little bit more, their starting pitching has is, is gone a little little sideways. Uh, I don't know. I just The Mariners, what I like about them is they remind me of teams I've seen win the World Series before where they have starting pitching depth. I don't think that that's the paradigm anymore. 
And it just, it's almost like a retro. It's nostalgic to see a team that goes four deep and every day, you know, they give you a good quality start. And, you know, obviously Julio Rodriguez uh, being 18 for his last 17 or whatever, that that doesn't hurt. Um, but I, <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I just, they seem like more of a classic team to me. And that, that fits with my preconceived uh, notions of what a good team should be. There's an 05 White Soxianness to the rotation. Yeah, that's right? perfect. Like, yeah, that's that's fair. I think there's a subset of baseball fans that want to love these guys. That rotation's four fifths homegrown. Castillo is a, a trade candidate, and also, you know, we've talked about the A's and Rays here a bit on this podcast, and and sort of how they basically just seek to win transactions constantly. And when you look at some of the other parts of how this team is built. There's a lot of that energy here, too. I mean, there's a lot of waiver claims in that bullpen right now. Teoscar Hernandez, obviously, is um, a guy they traded for who has turned it around. I think he's got like a 1048 OPS in his last month. Yeah, so, since they tried to trade him. I mean, so it's, you know, they, they have one transactions. They also have a bunch of homegrown guys who are obviously big for them. So I, I think it's a team that... that you know, again, a certain subset of fan wants to love because, you know, they are homegrown in some areas here that, that are big. I did some math on the podcast, which I don't recommend, some mental math. And by my count, the entire rotation of the Seattle Mariners has walked fewer batters than Randy Johnson did in 1992. <laughs> and I just love that. And it's got to be it's got to be fun to watch a team that doesn't give bases away. Doesn't give out free base runners. George Kirby's walked 14 guys in 156 innings. That's bananas. That's that's like a you know, Maddox is the good cop. Who was who are some of the the great control artists? Who am I missing? It's Tewksbury. Bob Tewksbury. That's Tewksburyian. I was thinking Clayton Kershaw, but yeah. Um <laughs> There is something very uh, aesthetically appealing about some of these lines, you know, the nine strikeouts per nine and one strikeout or one walk per nine. Like that's you look at that and you're like, ooh, I like the way that looks. But I I just I don't know. I mean, you're also talking about younger guys who are going to be bumping up against, you know, innings workloads that are going to be more significant than we dealt with. I know they they took some steps at the beginning of the season to, you know, guard against that. I don't know. I mean, it's it, it sets up for a very interesting AL West race for the final 6 weeks or so. I think there's three pretty good teams all have a lot of talent. Uh, the Mariners, I guess, seem to have like fewer obvious flaws. Like the lineup, kind of one through nine, has a bunch of like league average to one twenty five OPS plus guys. And Julio Rodriguez is a one thirty because he was kind of in the toilet for the first few months, and now he's hitting like Julio Rodriguez, you know, theoretically can do. And you see what that looks like. So you've got the sort of you know superstar type hitter uh, who you know strikes fear into the heart of the opponent every night. You know, you've got Luis Castillo who's you know, battle tested and, you know, pretty, and, you know, the uh, Kirby and Gilbert, you know, pretty good. So, yeah, I mean, there's a lot to like there. I just, I guess I have like a weird, uh, you know, and uh, all the Mariners fans who listen to the roundtable, please send your complaints to at Mark Career. <sighs> I just, I don't know. It's just, I have a weird, like, eh, it's the Mariners sort of bias. There's a good chance I'm wrong. I usually am, you know, unless, uh, you know, I remind you. So, who knows? I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you'll hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. 
And that is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and, not uh, as simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I fight against, because I have that same bias against the Padres, and I think I overcompensate for it. Like, I picked them to win the World right. Series this year. <laughs> right, but, right. you know, it turns out that they're paying for the sins of Ray Kroc murdering billions of cattle. Like, it's just the karma is just weighing the Padres down, and all, all the souls of the dead cattle are, are going against them, uh, and always will, forever and in perpetuity. So... Uh, I get it. I get it. What do you guys think about that theory? I just came up with it. I mean, that's pretty that's as good as any. <laughs> <laughs> it's as good as any. Why not? Yeah, but I, I get less of that vibe with the Mariners. I know that they're Padres North, uh, historically, uh, straight to the interleague rivalry and the Eddie Vedder Cup and all that stuff. Uh, but I don't, I just, I don't know. It seems like they don't have that sort of curse that the the Padres had, it, even if you're just looking at the talent that's come through uh, Seattle, Griffey and A Rod and Randy Johnson and and uh, Ichiro and I mean it's just it, one after another. Just, they've had just singular Hall of Famers uh, in a way where the the Padres have Tony Gwynn and then like their franchise home run leader is Nate Colbert, stuff like that. Uh, you know they couldn't even get Adrian Gonzalez in a uniform long enough to to be the franchise home run leader. So. I don't know. Like, I just feel like there's there's more despair with the Padres trading away Ozzie Smith and letting Dave Winfield go uh, uh, in free agency, where the Mariners are just a team that's never almost like the Blue Jays. You know, they just they've sort of hung around. Except the Blue Jays had those back to back championships. That's the only difference to me between the Mariners and the Blue Jays. I don't know. I'm rambling at this point, uh, Mark. I think historically that's very inaccurate. I don't think the Blue Jays and Mariners are actually similar at all, except for when they started. I mean, Toronto got to a deep playoff run in 1985. All right? Like, they've had success there, like, relatively quickly. Whereas, I think until, like, that 90s team in Seattle that kept them in the city, basically, you really didn't have that much to get behind there. All right? Like, that was not a team that was doing a lot of winning. This is Alvin Davis erasure. Well, I mean, you know, (laughs) how many playoff appearances those guys have? Right. Until that, those, you know, obviously it was a lot harder to get in back then. But I think to me, that, that franchise is from 95 on is what I think about the Seattle Mariners. And, and, and what a great time that was. All right. That that period of like, a you know, a little bit short of a decade starting in that mid 90s, where I think kind of like, a, I don't know, I'm biased because that's a, I was that's sort of a wheelhouse time for me. But. You know, I think about the Mariners in that context constantly. So I, I don't know if I have the same heebie-jeebies about their past as I would with the Padres. And here's the other thing. They just won a playoff series last year, beat a pretty good team to do it. There are a lot of those guys back on this club. 
it didn't work out for him the first half because there was some underperformance, as you guys mentioned earlier. But turns out some of the moves they made worked out pretty darn well for them. So it is just proof what they're doing right now is just proof of how long the season is. I know we all know it. I know we all know it. But I, I think it's something that even people who watch this all the time forget. All right. Like this isn't football where like the team that you see for 17 weeks or whatever is more or less the team that began the year barring injuries. In baseball, it couldn't be further from the truth. Look at this bullpen for a second, right? Look who's closing games out right now. Like, it's just a great reminder of, of, you know, I think it's another unique aspect of the sport. Not only is it so long, but because of the length of time that they're playing games, the the fundamentals of a team shift so much. And the Dodgers, I think of like that, right? In a lot of ways, they've kind of gone through that. And the fact they keep, you know, doing their thing really is a testament to just the machine that they've built over there. It's ridiculous. But like, you know, the Mariners are just, again, your latest, latest demonstration of how long the season can be and just how much teams can change because the season is so freaking long. Well, good teams also find a way to get through sort of adversity through get through, you know, fallow periods. And I guess it is, you know, look, I'm, I'm dismissive of the Mariners because I'm an idiot. But, like, this team did win 90 games last year. They won 90 games the year before, right? Like, they have a sort of close to singular superstar type talent. They sort of gutted through a pretty gnarly, you know, start to the year in a very difficult, very competitive division. And, you know, for once, like, their run differential might actually outpace their fun differential. You know? Like, so it's it's a le- like it's a legit club. I just, you know, but even though, like, when you're saying, like, when you talk about the length of the season, right, I just think, like, yeah, it's August 29th. If it was September 29th, you know, you'd be like, oh, no one wants to play the Mariners. But I just sort of am like, well, they got some games left against Texas and Houston. And we know at the very least that Houston will probably be up for it because they generally are. So I just think it's going to be fun. You know, it's good. I think it's good for the sport when the Mariners are good. It's terrible for people who live on the East Coast and, you know, have to think about flying there for the World Series. But it's a lovely city. I love the cherries. I loved, you know, it was great to be there during the all-star game, you know, the foliage, all that stuff. It would be, I was fortunate enough to be able to hit the belt, uh, you know, cover the postseason when it came back to Kansas City. And that was, you know, one of the coolest experiences of my career is getting to see, you know, Kauffman Stadium in that environment. The folks in Seattle got got a taste of it last year. And so if they got more of an extended run, hey, that you know, they've certainly earned it, man. They've they have sat through the Mariners. I, I don't know. I'm just going to make this up off the top of my head. The Mariners seem like the best argument that the sport could make for uh, expanding the postseason, because if you go look through that like fallow period from like oh one to <clears throat> to, you know, that 20 year drought or whatever, there's a lot of like. 93 win teams, 87 win teams, 88 win teams. Now they might not have been, you know, like the greatest teams, but those are the teams who like now they want in the postseason. I think the expanded postseason is not a great idea in general, but, you know, getting those clubs in, whatever, it makes it makes the wild card weekend exciting. Sometimes you got the Phillies doing kooky stuff like they did last year. So whatever. God doesn't give with both hands. One time when I worked with Jeff Sullivan and uh, before he was fancy and working for a team and he was a Mariners fan, and I asked him, I said, would you trade the Felix Hernandez experience for one championship? Would you just like uh, eternal sunshine him out of your memory to get one World Series run? And he said no. 
He said, absolutely not. And I asked that question to other Mariners fans more about Griffey. Um, and they said no. And it, what I like about the Mariners is they remind me that you can have just a really pure, beautiful baseball experience without the championship. And I think that's something that everyone needs to remember, that it's you can just have that experience of it's King Felix Day and we're going to go nuts and this is our guy and he's ours and you can't have him. And I forget that a lot and the Mariners helped me remind that. That being said, I think it's time for them to, to win like a pennant at least to just get into the World Series. Can I just say that was probably like an 11 war eye roll that McCullough gave you right oh, there. Oh, sh- okay. I Dude, didn't even see it. I was Check thinking- the replay on YouTube. Holy crap. I suspect if the Mariners had won a, a World Series during the era in which Felix Hernandez played and he played for another team, Mariners fans would have enjoyed another player on their team. Probably, probably. Because they would have won the World Series and they would have had some nice memories when that player helped well, them. The yeah, Series. okay. Listen, first off, I didn't see the eye roll because I'm busy staring in my own eyes uh, when I do this podcast. <laughs> Second... Uh, yeah, I get what you're saying. Like, you know, the Giants fans didn't enjoy Albert Pujols on their team, but they sure enjoy Cody Ross. Uh, yeah, I'm going to ding that bell. <laughs> I get the argument, but that strikes me as someone who's never experienced his team winning. That's a good That's a good point. I mean, I'm just saying, like, Ooh. look, I can only compare it. I can only... I can only compare it to football because that's the only sport where I have been a fan in any meaningful way. And I'm, you know, even then I was a, didn't care about the Eagles for like 12 years and I just picked them up because they started winning because <laughs> I like watching the team win. So couldn't yeah, be I, us, Mark. We're no Fairweather Warrior fans. You want to talk some Ike Diago, Bobby Sura? Would you guys give up the run TMC era to see that team win? One championship? It's tough. It's tough. I think I won. I think I won. Come on, bro. I mean, I don't know. That's a tough one. All I know is that I would have been fine with one Warriors championship in my lifetime. So whatever they accomplish from here on out is total bonus. I just, I don't care like that anymore. (laughs) I don't. It's freeing. I'll never forget that. I will never forget because now you got me thinking about the last team I have that won a championship. It is obviously the Warriors. So here, thanks for joining Warrior Roundtable. Mark Curry, Grant Brisby, some dude from the East Coast. But yeah, I, I think once you get the one, everything changes. It's all great. It's all yeah, great, so like yeah. maybe you're right, Andy. Maybe, that, <laughs> like it actually makes me think maybe that's it. Because it's just from like looking at it from a fan standpoint as a Warrior fan, that, that it changed everything, you know, changed everything. Yeah, because you have to tell yourself that there's a reason you're doing this. When you're watching the team go 72 and 90 every year, you have to tell yourself the reason that the, you're getting rewarded with a sing, you know, like an all star type talent. But yeah, I mean, after the birds beat the Pats, like they lost in the Super Bowl this past year. And like, yeah, I mean, I would have preferred if they won, but it's all right. I saw them win a Super Bowl. It's all gravy, man. You know, I can speak to my experiences as a fan. The despondency and despair of the Warriors in in that championship uh, series against the Raptors, where you have Clay hurt again, you've got Durant, and you just see the whole the whole things come. The windows closing. They're never going to win a world uh, a, a title again. That was like real fan despair, but it was nothing compared to the Giants blowing Game Six of 
the 2002 World sure. Series. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I mean? Be- yeah. Even with the yeah. Game yeah. 7 the next day, mm-hmm. like that sort of just, For sure. you just knew it wasn't going to happen. You knew you were never going to see uh, <laughs> the, the Giants win a World Series. It's a different kind of despair when it comes after championships because it was, listen, heartbreaking to watch Clay you know, do what he did. Yeah, of course. Uh, yeah, but it it was different because you already had uh, that stack of poker chips. Even the Cavaliers finals, okay? Like, yeah, would love for him to want to have won that one. But because they'd already won championships, like when I look at that, it's like, man, that was a great series. Holy shit, that was great basketball. And like, I can say that. It's okay. <laughs> so it did. The championship, whereas if it had been the other way around, God, I'd still be pissed about it. I'd still be angry. In my nightmares, I still see Joe Juravicious streaking down the sideline against the Eagles in the 2002 NFC Championship game. I still can, if I can close my eyes right now, I can see Rondé Barber running towards the end zone on the pick six that ended the game. I have not thought about the past Eagles Super Bowl more than 30 seconds. Like afterwards, everyone's like, can't you believe they called that? I'm like, yeah, he held him. Like, you know, it was a penalty. It was like, they, oh, they had a two-touchdown lead. It's like, yeah, they gave up a fumble six and a punt return TD to Patrick Mahomes. Yeah, they lost. It sucked. And then if I close my eyes, I see Joe Juravicious running <laughs> past. I think it was Levon Kirkland and Blaine <laughs> Just Welcome to oh. Remember Some Guys NFL Edition. Andy McCall is your host. In that regard, I can empathize with what a what a fan base like the Mariners who have suffered through, you know, both the both those sort of acute moments and also the deadening frustration of watching a team that you know isn't going anywhere and trying to gin up the enthusiasm for it. So I don't know. Maybe they should, I hope they win it all. To your point, Andy, one of the biggest impediments for them to actually winning it all is getting past the Astros, right? Because you have great respect for who they are. You know what the record is against the Astros this year? Is it good? They, the Astros are 2-8 and eight against the Mariners this year. Ooh. All right? And, and, and we were talking about last week about the Yankees and the Lanes. There's a new right? We're talking about Lanes and like how the Yankees His were one-dimensional. Yeah, Brian Wu. All right. The Astros are kind of right-handed heavy in their lineup a little bit. And, and, and what do the Mariners have? These like chainsaws who throw right-handed. And so it seems like at least there's been some element of that playing out during the regular season. So if we're talking about like Mariner vibes, you got to give them credit. Like, you know, they're, they're taking it to Houston to this point. Yeah. All right. And that's, that says something, you know, and I think a part of it is the matchup is okay for them. Right. Given, given like the personnel, but also, Hey man, I think that's a little bit of credit there. Like, you know, that they're getting up for those. And like you said, Houston ain't backing down. I know they've had a year of adversity there too, which by the way, they're right in the mix despite all of that. I mean, they were really banged up, this team. I mean, it's really impressive to me just how they've been able to grind it through. It's just like the Dodgers. Shocker, like right, really good teams find a way. So anyway, like I think that's a, that's a credit to the, the uh, Mariners. That, and, you know, I think they've been, you know, uh, I don't know, that carries a lot of weight for me. Hmm. Yeah, makes sense. Yeah. And the Rangers are still frisky. Anyway, what's up? <laughs> you had, so there's two thoughts you had. You've mentioned something about the A's in Slack. Uh, we haven't talked about the A's the, uh, on this podcast. Yeah. Okay. So let's move on to, we got like six minutes left. I want you to go on a rant about people <laughs> making fun of Dayton Moore uh, <laughs> going to the White Sox and people on the internet are mad about it. Yeah. I mean, look, first of all, let's see who actually gets hired. 
Bob Nightingale tends to be pretty accurate about stuff going on with the Chicago White Sox. So, uh, you know, Ben, he's reported that Chris Getz is likely to be the GM uh, with Dayton Moore in some sort of advisory capacity. I guess what I wonder is, like, why have we reached a point where, I don't know, I guess you could certainly argue, and the Royals felt this, that it was time to move on from from Dayton Moore uh, as the leader of their baseball operations department after last season. Things haven't exactly turned around right away, so there might have been, you know, it might not have been just one person who was at fault there or who had sort of led to the situation they were in. I understand why White Sox fans would be frustrated that after an organization being run by essentially a two-man leadership team for quite some time and it's clearly not going well, they would get rid of that leadership team and replace someone from within. I think that is to suggest that Chris Getz, a person who's worked in other organizations, had you know a credible playing career uh, and is generally seen – if Chris Getz got hired by another team to run their front office, people would be like, oh, Chris Getz. All right. Well, let's see what sort of ideas he's got. But because he's been working from within, he's immediately discredited. And maybe that's right. I don't know. Maybe that's right. But I get the knee-jerk sort of like, oh, you know, disregarding – like viewing Dayton Moore's career, like the, the struggles that the organization the Royals have had in the previous few years as a something that negates all the things that the team had accomplished before and all the lessons he'd learned in, you know, a significant career with the Atlanta Braves. Like it's just I don't know. It's like needlessly dismissive. And I don't know. We've seen a lot of people with inexperience come into GM jobs and be completely overmatched. The truth is we really don't exactly know who's a good executive or who isn't until they're given a pretty, you know, long chance to do it. And Chris Katz hasn't had that chance. And if he theoretically gets it and he wants to surround himself with someone whose opinion he trusts as an advisor, someone who's been a GM and won a World Series and has run a farm system and has run a draft and has run Latin American operations and has uh, profound respect from folks within the industry, that might not be the worst idea. It might also be a bad one. I don't know. But I think it's all just sort of blithely painting it, you know, hand hand waving it away that I think is just kind of pointless. That's I I'd li- like that. I mean that that's a good answer. That's exactly because I started my career uh, as a blogger who was convinced that Brian Sabian was a dummy. And I just I, <laughs> I just wrote and wrote about all oh, this guy, you know, any success he had was Barry Bonds and that he didn't bring Barry Bonds into the organization and he's just he's he's a, an outdated dinosaur. He doesn't know how to put together a winning team. Well, boy was there egg on my face. <laughs> you know what I mean? So it's it, that sort of yeah. journey from me being arrogant uh, blogger to arrogant chagrined blogger uh, helps inform me with someone like Dayton Moore because it's a reminder that these people forget more about baseball than you know. And if they've been around for a long time, they probably have people skills that work. Uh, They certainly have some sort of roster ideas that have worked in the past. Uh, I don't like the knee-jerk reaction for someone like uh, Dayton Moore. Save that knee-jerk reaction for a 90-year-old Tony La Russa uh, managing the White Sox. Yeah, I mean, at least there's like a uh, there's an age argument to be made there, as though you know we're the only pro ages of baseball podcast. <laughs> I hope not, because I'm starting to get a little long in the tooth. There's a lot of advisors in a front office. There's a lot of advisors, you know, and a lot of them have good ideas. And if they have bad ideas, you know, that's like I understand why White Sox fans want uh, someone they haven't seen before, and maybe not someone guided by a division rival 
someone who's worked for a division rival when that division rival is clearly not going great. Totally get that, okay? But, like, Theo Epstein ain't walking through that door. And if he did, he'd be old and gray, okay? <laughs> He's Like, so it's, you know, this idea, like, that there's a, you know, that there's a, there might be someone fresher, younger, you know, fresh eyes, all that stuff who'd be the right pick. I don't know who it is. It's a hard freaking job. And no one really knows who's going to be good at it until they get in the chair. Yeah, totally. And I, I kind of think with that job, yeah, obviously you need to know baseball. Obviously, you know, that's a job where you're also overseeing so many different elements of the organization. And it's going to be a lot of things that aren't in your wheelhouse. And that's a, that's a really difficult skill, by the way. Somebody who can manage that despite not being an expert at that one thing. So I think of Brian Cashman all those years sticking around. That's why, because he knows how to do that very thing. And it's a big part of that job. I think the reaction of the fans is more about Jerry Reinsdorf than anything else. Sure, they just, you know, they want to fire the owner and anything that he brings in, you know, they're automatically going to have an issue with. So, you know, Dayton Moore, who's got a ring, by the way, they're all up in arms about that. You got Gats who, you know, just by association, I think they're, they're sort of having this reaction. And of course, it's not fair. I, I don't think it's fair at all. I do think it's a commentary on how stability is something that has become looked at as totally evil now. I, I, you know, like there's a very much this desire to always turn it over. And I think about that as, you know, the, the Nationals just re-signed Mike Rizzo. I think it's sort of, you know, refreshing to see somebody survive through cycles, right? Like they they went and ramped up, won a World Series, tore it down. And, you know, they're already starting to move toward getting a little bit closer every year to like being competitive again. Those players that they've acquired in those deals, you know, are, are getting valuable experience right now. And so like it's not, you don't look at the Nationals and think, oh, my God, they're in real trouble for years and years to come. I, I don't look at them that way. So I don't know. I think it, it's kind of an interesting juxtaposition, right? Like people are up in arms about the White Sox situation. Meanwhile, the Nationals have like pretty much said, you know, we're going to keep our leadership intact, get us through this next cycle. So I, I don't know. I, I think there is something to stability, for better or worse, I guess, like if you're looking at the White Sox. But it's not fair to like label those guys for like, you know, with a scarlet letter just because, you know, Jerry Reinsdorf gave him a shot, right? That doesn't seem fair at all. Part of the issue with the White Sox, too, is like looking through this this sort of crop of basically like for the most part, like sort of failed prospects or at least guys who underperformed this year and determining like, you know, separating like the wheat from the chaff, you know, like who to keep, who to who to discard and, you know, sort of how to move on. It probably wouldn't hurt to have someone who had worked within the inside the organization, you know, be a part of that discussion. But I, I don't know. I'm more just like I more was just sort of peeved at the like instant dismissal of like a lengthy uh pretty significant like pretty successful career in a variety of ways you know that's all all right we got a roundtable head of the week before we get out of here mark what you got matt zupon i hope i pronounced that properly matt wrote an email in which he says, I know it isn't, quote, cool or, quote, hip to say I love the Roundtable podcast, <laughs> but I don't care. I've been an avid Roundtable head since the Tyler Malley pronunciation days. <laughs> and I'm old enough to, enough to remember when you defaulted the Twins to best team in baseball status. The talk of merchandising your brand to the eight avid listeners 
prompted me to share my sticker designs with you. I made the first sticker during the preseason this year and have been rocking it on my coffee mug as the pro labor bit is arguably the most enduring slogan of the podcast. The Buck Showalter sticker is a more recent mock-up that I haven't had a chance to make as a sticker. I just have the one pro labor sticker on my mug so not trying to profit off this or infringe on any copyrights <laughs> i just absolutely worship the show and like to demonstrate how much i love it when i drink coffee thanks for the laughs please let me know when i can pre-order mark's book can't seem to find any links anywhere signed matt that is well done sir <laughs> the kicker is so, so good. good nailed it baby Making your own stickers for the, that just touches me. That's, that's a level of devotion. You know, the only, I, it reminds me of when I made a, a t-shirt of the Goodfellas painting with one dog looking one way, oh, so good. one dog looking the other way. Like I went and I took the time to turn that into a t-shirt and I wore it and no one ever commented on it, but I did it. And so that's what he's doing with his stickers. So I appreciate the passion. Mrs. Kerrig wants one of those shirts. I'm telling <laughs> you, she loves that movie and she loves that painting. Oh, so my gosh. She would have appreciated. All right. This has been episode number 63 of the Roundtable. We will be back next week uh, to dismiss the Mariners' chances, to give some Dayton Moore propaganda, all that good stuff. We'll talk about baseball because that's what we do. Thanks for listening. See you then. I was very wrong.